0: Last time I preached, we covered the first part of chapter 37. (laughs) Kenny Guzman told me today, are you going to get through another half a verse or how far are we going? (laughs) Uh, We will hopefully finish this chapter out. Chapter 37, we started on it last time. We were introduced to the man that the book of Genesis will now fixate upon for the rest of the entire tome. The rest of the book. And that, of course, is Joseph. He's, very, he's quite a central figure. We could say, as we get into this final Toledot, remember we talked about what Toledots were last time? Maybe I should review that real quickly. Um, the, the, the word Toledot is loosely translated as generations, but the long story short is it's basically a history of where certain people or groups or how things originated. <clears throat> and the book of Genesis has ten of those in total. It's not just... Um, It is one long narrative, don't get me wrong, but it's ten smaller narratives basically put together. And those smaller narratives are called Toledot. So originally, this book was not 50 chapters. Originally, this book was ten sections that were a little bit larger, right? And so this is the final section. This is the Toledot of basically the family of Jacob, or Israel, right? And, And it's going to mostly fixate upon Joseph and then, of course, seeing how does Israel... How does Israel get into Egypt? Because later we're going to, like this morning, uh, Pastor Justin was talking about the plagues and and Israel coming out of Egypt. And, of course, that raises a very uh, related question, which is how in the world did Israel get to Egypt to start with? This Toledoth tells us that. Right? It tells us how it was, how it came to be that Israel came out of, if you will, the promised land. And how they would then have to come out of Egypt and basically conquer the promised land. Because in their absence, there are other people who are going to take over those, those places. Remember all of those lands? Remember all that land that um, Jacob and others bought? Well, it, what, would, what would happen if you had vacant land? If somebody bought, say, a thousand acres of land, and they didn't show up, they didn't send a letter, they didn't say anything to anybody... For a few hundred years, do you think you would come back to find out, oh, it's still here waiting on you? Of course not. You would vacate it for long enough that someone else would move in and claim it, rebuy it. Who knows how they would take it, but they would take it. And so what we're going to find out is Israel goes down into Egypt and then has to come back out and retake the land that God gave them. Does that make sense? So this Toledot tells us that And as we get into this final Toledot I want you to know there's one major theme That we're going to see tie this entire section together And that is the theme of God's providence We will see that God is so sovereign over his creation That he even rules over sin Over the sinful acts of men The sinful acts that Joseph's brothers mean for evil God will use for good, that God is so sovereign, he can even rule over the wickedness of men. That's, that should be quite a comfort to us, right? It should be one of the greatest comforts in all of Scripture. If you were here on Wednesday night, by the way, you heard Caleb talk about that very thing, that God has control over our lives even, even when we are suffering, and even in the midst of our suffering, God will use that, He'll use that to sanctify us. He'll use that to change us, to be more like Him. And He'll, in the long scheme of things, He will use that for the advancement of His kingdom as well, for the good of His people and for His glory, which is a great promise of Scripture. He uses our trials for good. In fact, often when we go through trials, the Lord reveals Himself to us in ways that we really didn't fully understand Him before. Uh, he, he walks through the fire with us. He doesn't leave us. He says He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's walking through this fire with you. He's walking through this trial with you. He may have very well sent you through that trial, but He's not sending, it, sending you through it alone. We'll experience Him as perhaps Jehovah Roi, the Lord who is my shepherd. Or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who gives me peace even in the midst of the fire. We may experience him as Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord who sanctifies. But know this for certain God has never relinquished his control over your life. He has never relinquished his control over his creation simply because of sin. Sin does not make him less sovereign. In fact, he's promised to use sin in such a way that it turns out for the good of his people, the advancement of his kingdom and the furtherance of his glory. Romans 8:28 brings this into full view when it promises that God works all things together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. You aren't just called according to a purpose, you are the called According to his purpose. God handles sin sinlessly. He takes what evil men meant for evil schemes. And he causes it instead to work for the good of his people. And toward those who are the called according to his purpose. We will certainly see that today in the life of Joseph. We will see that God is watching over Joseph. That God is preserving and guiding his life. Even when Joseph is unaware of exactly what God's up to. In Joseph's eyes, this is the time when God ruined his life. Joseph had all those big dreams, and they did not include being thrown into a pit, sold off as a slave, working for more than a decade as a slave in the house of an absolutely brutal murderer, then spending a couple years in prison. None of those things were on his agenda. And yet at the end of all of that, we're going to see Joseph say to his brothers, Listen, no hard feeling, fellas. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, and he sent me ahead of you. Who who sent him? He sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Joseph had a very mature understanding of what was going on. You guys didn't sell me into slavery because of your evil. God sent me and this was how he sent me all right so before we get any further into that let's pray lord we pray that you would show us great things today from your word lord i ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit speak to the hearts of your people today through your word lord for the building up of your people For the advancement of your kingdom and for your glory. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you alone. Because we know, Lord, you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Turn with me. Turn with me to chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. If we were going to give this title a chapter, we might say, When God ruined Joseph's life. When God ruins your life, this is what happens. Well, you find out he didn't really ruin it after all, but he did run it. You find out you're not as much in control as you think you are, and that's good. It certainly would have seemed like to Joseph at the time that God just ruined his life. He will go from having dreams of grandeur to being sold off as a slave, but through it all, God is still at work for his good and for God's glory And actually for the good of God's people as well. You're going to see that Joseph is going to go through a terrible trial. But through that, he's going to be able to save God's people from starving to death in the worst famine the world had seen up to that point. God is working even through what seems to be the wicked schemes of man. So let's just hit the highlights of what we covered last time. And then we're going to pick up where we left off and finish out that chapter today. So let's start at verse 1. 37:1. 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. Verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. So there's that toledot marker we talked about it tells us we're now in the last section of the book of Genesis. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. And I told you last time, the Hebrew here actually means he brought a true report of their evil. Some people, when they see that he brought a bad report, what they think is, oh, Joseph went and tattled on his brothers and he made it sound worse than it really was. Actually, the Hebrew phrasing here means he gave an accurate report of their evil. Which is to say, these four brothers are doing something they shouldn't have been doing that they know their father won't like, and they're basically saying, listen, let's all keep this to ourselves. And Joseph refuses. Joseph is saying, my loyalty to my father is greater than my loyalty to you. Christian, did you catch that? My loyalty to my father is greater than my loyalty to you. This should be the anthem of every Christian working man. Right? Right? Just go along with it. Just go along with just a little bit of this evil. We'll all be pals. A lot of times in the world we live in, that's how camaraderie is formed. You go to work and everybody's doing something that they probably shouldn't do, but hey, we won't tell the boss. We'll all get in this together. And Joseph goes, I'm I'm not going to go along with that. And he is despised by his brothers for it. But we're actually seeing something of the character of Joseph. Now, listen, we're going to see that that character is very immature in other areas. I'm not saying that it's not. But this is one area that we see some very stalwart character. He cares more about doing what's right in his father's eyes than he does care about being popular. And quite frankly, the desire to be popular is a snare for a lot of people. And I mean Christians too, which is why the scripture says the fear of man is a snare. That's what it means. You will not do what's right. Joseph, we will see here, is without fear of man. Okay? So that's a great thing. We see this early on. He has a backbone. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And I told you last time, this phrase, a robe of many colors, doesn't necessarily mean... Just colors uh, the, the the in in Hebrew the phrase is a robe of many hands uh, meaning it wasn't just something you could just sew up overnight at your house right this wasn't just this was a very unique garment it was very flamboyant, but it wasn't just colorful it was also long it was long sleeved and it was long legged if you will and and I told you last time that was very significant because that was not the clothing of the working man. The working the working man, especially in this kind of agrarian society, would have been wearing either sleeveless garment or very shortened sleeves, and it would have ridden high up on his legs, on his waist. Basically, what we would think of today as shorts and a t-shirt. Okay? Why? Because it needed to be cool. They're working through the heat of the day. It needed to be cool. I don't know if you've ever had to do that, work through the heat of the day. I know yesterday my watch said it was 108 at 430. That's hot. I would, not be, I would not want to be in a three-piece suit if I were working outside when it's 100 degrees plus. And that's kind of the thinking here. If you wore a long robe, it was obvious you were not spending your days out in the field. It was obvious to everyone who could see you you were the fellow that was in charge of the workers. You weren't one of the workers. okay? And that's going to cause real problems between Joseph and his brothers. Because his brothers, who are almost all of them older than him by quite a ways, are wearing the workers' clothes. They are being the workers out there. And Joseph is, in essence, the foreman. I told you last time, he's the guy that comes out there and he's got his Starbucks latte and his clipboard and he's checking on everybody. Hey guys, boy, it looks like it's hot. You guys have got this covered. Just making sure everything's going okay. I'm going to go back to the tent and have a couple of the servants fan me. But hey, look, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. It actually goes deeper than that because in that culture, in that day, these guys who were, who were tending their father's flocks, it wasn't like you, It wasn't like today where you go out and there's fences. Or you're, you come out to my place and there's cattle and there's fences that hold those cattle from going different places. Well, at least they're supposed to. They usually do, right? No, at that time, you were following the flocks around. You were kind of just, it's almost like you're driving this big machine, right? You're following these flocks around. And so wherever these flocks camped out at night, that's where you camped out. So three or four days out of five, you're sleeping out on the hard ground. Where's Joseph sleeping? In that cozy little bed of his, back in the tent. And that's exactly what we see here, right? Hey, your brothers are all tending the flocks down there at Shechem. Where's Joseph at when he's having this conversation with his dad? Back at headquarters. All right? Back in the comfortable place to be. Okay. This favoritism is going to cause real trouble in the family. So verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Joseph has some great character, but he also is a little low on tact and understanding. He might be a bit spoiled. Maybe a little bit entitled. Better he's on the spectrum. He's he's not, he's not catching the social cues here. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and they bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his fathers and his brothers, his father rebuked him. Oh, Dad thought the other dream was cute, huh? Now all of a sudden, wait, you think I'm going to bow down to you too? Who do you think you are, you little snot-nosed rat? Right? I've got a couple of boys that like to tell me every now and then, I tell them, I'm glad you're my son. I love you and I'm glad you're my son. My boys like to say, I'm glad you're my son. Who do you think you are, pal? (coughs) It's kind of a joke we have back and forth. His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers all indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Who do you think you are, Joseph? Do you really think you're going to be that exalted? I think you've got to remember Jacob, Israel, he has dreams for this boy too. I think in Jacob's mind, I want to see—I want to see God use him greatly, exalt him. Okay, I'm going to exalt him above you. That, that's too far. Not quite. That no. Bring him back down. Well, the Lord's given him these dreams. By the way, just as a—just as a point, the story does come to pass. Those dreams that God gave him do come to pass. It's just not the way he thought. And his brothers were jealous of him, verse 11, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem, which is very interesting. And Israel said to Joseph, are, your, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. Okay, Shechem is at least two or three days if you're just walking. With the flock, it's probably a week or more. So these brothers have been out there a long time. And they're going back to a place that Jacob's very nervous about for good reason. Remember, Shechem was where Dinah had been defiled. And then Simeon and Levi go, we ain't taking that. And they went into town and they killed all these men. Every man of the, of the city, they killed. And remember, they had to flee after that. Jacob says, man, we got to go now. Now all the people around here are going to be wanting to kill us. we got to pick up and move. And that's why they moved. So now they're at least 50 miles away, a little over 50 miles away, in, in roughly Hebron, the Hebron Valley. By the way, that's eventually why we'll call them Hebrews. But they're in the Hebron Valley. They're living there. And now these guys have taken the flock all the way back. Now, why would they do that? Now, I've thought about this a lot. I think part of it is they lived in Shechem a while. That's, that, that was home. And every so often, I mean, I'm this same way. When I go back, I, I grew up in a small little farming community out in western Kansas. When I go back home, I kind of want to see the place. What's happened since we left? What, what does it look like now? And remember, their dad still owned property there. So by, you know, you could say, by, technically by legal rights, they have a right to go back. Because they had a place there. Probably the dwelling was still there. The well was still there. Hey, let's go take the... the Flock back down to the old stomping ground and see what's going on. Maybe not a really wise idea. But I think part of it, the other part of it was, they didn't like Joseph. They couldn't even speak peaceably to him. And I think in their minds they're like, you know what, let's go somewhere where we can be rid of this little dude. It's not within a walk. It's not within a day's walk. He can't just come out there with his clipboard and his Starbucks latte and check on us. He wants to come check what's going on. He's going to have to spend two or three nights out in the open, which is something he was not accustomed to. He would have been sleeping in his bed every night, right? So they go to Shechem. And after they've been there a while, Jacob, very, with good reason, is a little nervous. What's going on? Is everything okay with him? Who is he going to send that's really going to tell him what's going on? Well, Joseph is his most trusted advisor, right? He knows if I send Joseph, Joseph will bring me in a real report of what's really going on, not just what everybody wants me to know. Okay, having an employee like that is a very valuable thing, and that's not lost on dad here. So eventually dad sends him, come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said, here I am, whatever you want. He has no idea this will be the last time that he will see his son for 22 years. He has no idea. I think that should strike home. To us as Christians, we take a lot of things for granted. We take the God's providence that we've known thus far for granted. We take it for granted that God is going to bring back our loved ones to us again. We take it for granted that I'll see them all again. Tell you two little stories about that. I took that for granted. Um, I didn't know my dad real well growing up, <coughs> and um, I just took for granted that I would kind of be around him more as I as I got older, and that I would learn more about him. And we just kind of because we had we had started kind of forming a relationship again as I was older. He was living in Davis, and I was here in Ada going to college, and so I just kind of took that for granted. And and so I took a job up in the northeast corner of Oklahoma. Thinking, well, I'll I'll go there for my, my plan. This is my plan. My plan was I'll go there for a few years, um, and I'll kind of get all my lesson plans and stuff figured out. And then when there's a really a good opening back down here in this area, I'll take that and move back down. And and in my mind, like looking, you know, ahead, that's when we'll be having kids, and we'll be, you know, we'll be around grandma and grandpa and all that stuff. And unbeknownst to me, three months after we moved, my dad would die. 56, which is, you know, it's not real young, but it's certainly not old. You realize, wait, can't take those things for granted. Here, he's kind of doing that. I'm going to send Joseph off to do this, and I'll see him here in a few days. Please, Christian, I'm begging you, don't. Don't take it for granted. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and then bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Remember, Shechem was still surrounded by the Perizzites, the Canaanites. There was good reason for Jacob to be a little nervous about all of his sons. Remember, the only two sons that were not there was Joseph and Benjamin. So ten out of the twelve are down there. There's good reason for him to be a little bit nervous. Shechem was roughly 50 miles south of Hebron, where they were living at the time. So that was the old stomping ground, but it was a long way away. Joseph dutifully heads out to find his brothers and the flocks, just like his father asked. Verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? So he gets down to Shechem, and he's looking around the old stomping place, the old place that they used to live, the fields. And he's like, why aren't they here? I thought they came to Shechem. Isn't this where they're supposed to be? He's looking around for them. He's like, where? Where'd they go? And a man asked him, what are you seeking? There are some commentators that think this was an angel. I can't say one way or another. 16 says, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Dothan was at least 10 minutes, somewhere between 10 and 15 miles walk distance from where he was, kind of depending on where he was around Shechem. Um, so it was a long way away. You couldn't just see it over the hill. That's why he couldn't see the flocks of the pastures. Dothan, the word Dothan actually means two cisterns. It's literally what the word means. That's why this little village is named that. There were two large water cisterns cisterns dug into the ground there to hold water during the dry season, right? So there, kind of like Oklahoma, only more so, but Oklahoma kind of has rainy seasons, spring and fall, especially the spring, right? And then you get in the middle of summer, like right now, you start looking around, everything's dead and crunchy, right? You need to have some water that can get you through that time, especially if you have livestock. And so in Dothan, they had that. So it would make sense that they're like, hey, let's go over to Dothan. There's cisterns there, right? We can take the the flock over there. By the way, much later in Israel's history, Dothan was actually where Elisha saw the angelic armies surrounding him, protecting him even when the Syrians came in. That was at Dothan. 18, they saw him from afar. Now this is interesting to me. How could they see him from afar? How could they know that was Joseph from afar? Well, he's wearing his robe, right? You would think, like, dude, you're out here on your own, out in the heat. Just take it off. No, sir. People see me. They'll know I'm important. So they see him coming from a long way off, and they go, there he is. There's the boy. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. They're talking about the cisterns. It's not just a pit that's out there nowhere. Remember, there's two cisterns there, and at least one of them was already dry. Possibly both. At least one of them's dry, and they're like, let's just throw him into that. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what would become of his dreams. Now think about how cruel this is. I think, and I can't prove this, but I'm going to tell you why I think it. I think it was actually Simeon and Levi that were leading this charge. Their idea is, let's throw him in the pit and let's leave him here to die. How cruel is that? Let's throw him into this cistern that holds water when, you know, when there are rains. He's literally going to be at the bottom of this pit and he's going to die of dehydration over the next few days. And he's going to be in a terrible place. He's going to be... Drying out and screaming and hollering and nobody can hear him and we'll be rid of him Now that's brutal That's savage I suspect the the plot was masterminded and championed by simeon and there's some reasons for that Probably with the support of levi you have to remember simeon and levi or from the same mother Which means they grew up in the same tent and they're right next to each other in the birth order Right from the same mom leah we get Reuben first, then Simeon, then Levi, then Judah, and then a couple more, right? Simeon and Levi are right next to each other. I don't know if any of you have boys that are right next to each other. I do. Those boys will become thick. They run around together. They do everything together. My brother and I were that way. Now listen, I could be so mad at that guy that I couldn't see straight. I want to punch his lights out, but I sure wasn't letting somebody else do it. Right, and there were a lot of plans and plots and schemes that he hatched and I went along with, or that I hatched and he went along with. It got us both in trouble. You with me here? I think that was very similar with Simeon and Levi. It was the same thing when they went into Shechem. Hey, we're not letting somebody do this, are we? No, 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 we're not. Well, let's go. Okay, let's go. Right? They've got a plan. Let's kill this guy. Remember, none of them liked him. But these guys are like, let's go all the way. And I'll tell you the other thing, the other reason I think it was actually Simeon. In chapter 42, we're going to see something. We're going to see that Joseph is going to require them to leave a brother there in prison while they go back and get their family. And he doesn't give them the option of, hey, tell me which brother you want to stay. Remember, Joseph was in the cistern while they were plotting and and eating. He heard their conversation. And in chapter 42, he's going to come in and have his guys bind Simeon hand and foot right there in front of everybody else. And I think it's because I think Simeon was probably so savage, so willing to go to blows, so willing to be violent, that probably most of the other brothers were pretty scared of him. They were intimidated by him. So in chapter 42, Joseph is also sending a message. I can do whatever I want to him. Trust me, I'll have no problem with you, because they, they still didn't know it was him, right? So, not to skip ahead, not to skip ahead. All right. I, I'm guessing, though, that's it. That's it. Here's the other thing that I think is incredible. Reuben is the oldest. Now, I'm not trying to excuse what Reuben did earlier with this, you know, incestuous affair with Bilhah and all that stuff, but I am saying this: we will see Reuben act with honor. Who has the most to lose? By Joseph being on the scene. Reuben. Reuben is the oldest brother. He's the guy that should be in line to be, you know, the head honcho. So if something happens to Joseph, Reuben's the guy. I mean, at least in their minds. And yet, the one who's doing all he can to keep this guy from dying is Reuben. And I think it's because Reuben has a great affection for his father. I think Reuben knows if Joseph dies, dad, it'll kill him. It'll kill dad. So I may not like him. It may be annoying, but I'm not willing to have that kind of, you know, that, that kind of trial on my dad. I'm not willing to have that kind of sorrow and sadness, that kind of calamity on my dad. So I'm going to keep him alive even if he annoys the dog out of me. We'll see what will become of his dreams, right? That's really what they were opposed to. They were opposed to the dreams that came from God. Which is to say, in a sense, they wanted to defeat God's purpose for Joseph's life. Bad news. God will not be defeated. His purposes will prevail. (laughs) There's a little song that my kids sing sometimes. If you're standing on the tracks of what God is going to do. It will be really, 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 really not so good for you. And they're going to find that out. So when Reuben heard it, this is 21, he rescued him out of their hands saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, just throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And he thought that, the verse says, so that he might come back and rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So Reuben thought, Okay, listen. Put him in the pit, leave him there, that's fine, because in Reuben's mind, I'll come back later and I'll get him out. Right? I'm I'm sure Reuben is probably thinking he'll learn his lesson from that, right? I mean, listen, let's scare the boy, but don't kill him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, the Ishmaelites who were also from Abraham, remember? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So, what happened here? How does he not know about this? Well, remember, he's the oldest brother. He's the one that all the responsibility falls on. If something happens to the flocks, it's not going to be required from the other guys. It's coming out of Reuben. Does that make sense? My guess is, as they're plotting all this stuff about Joseph, Reuben tells them, listen, don't kill him. Just throw him in the pit. And when he sees that everybody says, all right, all right, all right, that's cool. That's what we'll do. He leaves. Why would he leave? Somebody has to go check the flock. Everybody can't just sit around and have a good time. Somebody's got to be working he is going i'm i'm guessing he's going and checking the flock and making sure everything's okay And then he's coming back And his thinking is when I come back when everybody else gets done eating and they have to spread out and go back to work I'll come back and rescue this kid Not knowing they're going to sell him while he's gone So they draw him up now judah Takes it on himself and says listen, let's just sell him. I think Judah was probably doing kind of the same thing as reuben was doing my guess is they were close that judah's saying here's an opportunity we'll sell him but he won't be killed right I'm getting him out of the hands of Simeon Levi you know the death crew if you will maybe maybe not we don't know we don't know what his intentions are it's, there's no way we can drill into his heart right but we do know that Reuben was trying to save him and we do know later When he's in Egypt, Reuben will tell him, the reason that this guy is so harsh to us and the reason all this bad stuff is happening is because you guys killed our brother and I told you not to. They were still smart enough to realize that our actions have consequences. Today, most of the time, even Christians will think, well, that's just superstitious nonsense. When Reuben returned to the pit, saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, "The boy is gone, and I, wh- where shall I go? He's not. Th- Guys, did you know I went over to the pit that we threw him in? He's not there. Well, they know what happened to him. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors. This is so wicked." They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. Now think about this. Look what they've just done to their father. In their father's mind, I sent Joseph out by himself. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I sent him out by himself, and while he was out there trying to find these guys, he got killed by some wild animal. Who is going to blame themselves for his death? Dad is. Dad is going to blame himself for Joseph's death. And that is their plan. Because then he won't blame us. We're fine with deceiving him. We're fine with taking him through the worst discomfort, the worst emotional peril we can think of. Because then he won't blame us for it. he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. No doubt a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob took his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Think about wearing underwear made out of gunny sack material. There is very little that is less comfortable than that. He mourned for his son so many days. He mourned so long that finally all of his sons and daughters were like, oh my gosh, we we got to do something. Dad is just moping around here all the time. So his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I'll go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. In other words, I will mourn for him until I die. Go down and see him again. Meanwhile 36 the midianites had sold him in egypt to potiphar an officer of pharaoh the captain of the guard By the way, the word here translated as officer is saris meaning eunuch And when we say captain of the guard You know, you can kind of think of like secret service This is the guy that's around the pharaoh, but way more so much more brutal Their job basically as the captain of the guard was do the dirty work for pharaoh whoever pharaoh says to kill We're going to go kill them. In fact, another word for the guard was the slaughterers. These are Pharaoh's slaughterers. If you tick him off, if he doesn't like you, these are the guys that kill you. They aren't even given a reason. Hey, here's the guy. I want you to go kill him. Okay, let's go, guys. Sometimes we get this idea that Potiphar was some wonderful, upstanding guy. Look at all that Jacob must have learned. Why, Potiphar probably mentored him. Potiphar probably reminded him of Simeon. Potiphar was a brutal man. But Potiphar was also a eunuch. And I think that's going to play into why his wife is chasing after Joseph later. Potiphar would have been quite familiar with bloodshed and gore. Now listen. God's providence was not thwarted by the sin of Joseph's brothers. Listen to what, uh, I want to read you a little piece of, John Piper just wrote a book called Providence. It's basically his big um, magnus opus, probably, magnum opus. Almost 800 pages long. It's not a quick read, but I'm I'm working my way through it. It is a good read, and a large section of it is actually about this very thing, about Joseph and about what happens. Here's what he says. I think it's really good. (laughs) The enslavement of Joseph through the sins of his brothers contains one of the most important statements in all the Bible about the providence of God. The statement is made by Joseph to his brothers near the end of the story. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people would be kept alive just as they are today. Before there was any hint of famine coming on the land of Canaan, strife was brewing among Jacob's twelve sons. They hated Joseph. And the sequence of events by which God would save this family from the coming famine was actually set in motion through a tangled web of sin, including fatherly favoritism, brotherly jealousy, and even murderous hatred. But God was still at work, and the plan for murder was replaced by the power of greed. After all, there was no financial gain in merely killing the man. So after selling Joseph off into slavery, the boys cover their tracks by dousing his coat with animal blood and then convincing their father he'd been killed by a fierce animal while out in the wilderness. With this entire constellation of sins against Joseph and his father, the brothers had set in motion an astonishing sequence of events that would actually lead to their own deliverance from the famine. Look at how Joseph describes it later. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. What a forgiving guy. Because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. Who sent me here? God did. Listen, are you going through something? Are you going through the trial? Are you hating those people that put you in that trial as it's so easy to do? Have you ever had someone at work slander you? <laughs> if you're a Calvinist, I promise you have. Do you get angry at them for it? Is it possible that God is actually working through those circumstances? That if you will get your eyes off of you, you will see that God is working through it for the furtherance of his kingdom? A couple years ago, a couple years, four or five years ago now, losing track, um, I severed my pectoral muscle, pulled it all the way off my, my the bone in my arm. And I can remember going to the hospital and, and really thinking, like, God, what is this all about, you know? And I go to the hospital, and it was a not a fun time, and then I had to have surgery, and they put all this metal in my arm, and today I'm like Bucky on the Avengers. No, not really. I guess it didn't work that way. But I can remember thinking at the time, this is a lot of pain, and it was a very long, painful injury. It was more than a year of physical therapy, and there was not a time that I went to physical therapy that did not hurt. I mean, I can remember the second or third week of doing physical therapy. I can remember pulling up in my pickup, and and I I literally brought my mouthpiece because I was gritting my teeth so much. And I was just praying. I was like, God, I I don't even want to go in here. It was just, you know, I, I hated it. But... I go in there, and I had the same couple of people that were working with me every time. And one of them was a young man who had a lot of questions about, is God real? Is the Bible reliable? And I don't mean gotcha questions. I mean, he was really searching for truth. And in this time when I'm having so much pain, I'm able to have these great conversations to explain the gospel to him, to have conversations about apologetics with him. I would never have run into him otherwise. But would God really do that for one person? Would he injure me, send me through a trial to get the gospel to someone that wouldn't have gotten it otherwise? Yes. Yes. That is a privilege of mine. God's providence has not left you. God has not surrendered his his authority and his sovereignty over your life. He has not surrendered it because of bad circumstances. He has not surrendered it because of co-workers that malign you. He has not surrendered it because you don't have enough money. He has not surrendered it because you're in discomfort. He is still at work. He is still at work advancing his kingdom. He is still at work changing hearts. He is still at work drawing sinners to himself and saving them. His providence does not slumber. He is still at work, saints, and he's still at work in you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your gracious and merciful providence. Thank you, Lord, for working all things together for good to those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. Thank you for watching over your people and saving them from the schemes of wicked men and the snares of the devil. Thank you, Lord, that you've told us, promised us you would never leave us nor forsake us, and in every trial... In every circumstance, you are there with us. Remind us of that again today, Lord. Remind us as we go forward. We thank you for it, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.